0: Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. I am truly excited to introduce you to my guest today, Devon Clayton. Devon is the Vice President of Food Initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation, which he joined in 2013. The Rockefeller Foundation is a private philanthropic organization with a vision to build resilience and equity for all, to create a future where everyone has access to the resources they need to thrive. Devon oversees the foundation's Good Food Strategy here in the United States, which works to advance a more nourishing, regenerative and equitable domestic food system. She leads the foundation's work on the true cost of food, which analyzes the hidden costs of the food system on health, equity, and the environment. And prior to all of this, Devon led the foundation's strategic planning team and its YieldWise initiative, which invested in preventing food waste here in the US. Devin, welcome to the podcast. That's quite some work.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here and be able to chat.
0: To get things started, Devon, it's fair to say that you're an accomplished food system strategist, which I just love. And you have a ton of experience in designing programs and executing initiatives. Also notice that you have an MA in food systems from NYU. That makes me think that your career path to date has been no accident. So what is it about food systems in particular that has kept your attention for so long?
1: Well, no accident, but I think I had some help and some luck along the way. So I'll just say, you know, even as a kid, Michael, I was really interested in food. I will date myself and say that I was watching food television before the Food Network was a network. And I remember coming home from middle school and staying up late at night to watch foreign food shows that would run on pbs you know with subtitles at midnight so i've always just been really interested in food personally i've always really loved to cook and um to think about food and kind of the food sector and then i went to college and i studied cognitive psychology which is not necessarily food related but um helped me think a lot around how our brains work and how we make decisions and coming out of college, I realized I didn't want to be a full-time researcher. I didn't want to get a PhD. And so I actually ended up in the business sector. I became a strategy consultant. I worked at a fantastic small firm founded by a few ex-McKinsey partners and really kind of dove deep into strategy. And that's where I think the strategist part of food system strategy was really born and kind of um, nourished. And that was a fantastic experience. I still often introduce myself as a recovering consultant, because if you've been in that role you know what it's like to be in that role and come out of it but after spending several years working across sectors you know pharma telecom healthcare uh, but also food and beverage i really just came out of that experience with the desire to dive deep into one system into one sector and the system and the sector that had always interested me personally the most was was food and i had you know a couple glimpses into food and beverage from a business perspective but there was so much. I didn't understand about that system globally and i happened upon this fantastic graduate program out of nyu that was called food systems which i was almost in disbelief when i discovered it and gave me the opportunity to study a little bit the business of food but also economics and behavioral economics and global pricing and the history of food and food and culture and food writing and just really look at the system from all these different perspectives and It was really the deep dive into one thing that i was craving after being a consultant and kind of you know learning so much about so many different things so quickly and then the luck part is just as i was graduating from that program a former colleague of mine from my consulting days had joined the rockefeller foundation and he asked me to come help them think through strategy which was you know my background on a three month contract, could he, could I come for three months and help them with a new strategy process? And that was a decade ago and I got hooked on philanthropy and I got hooked on solving some of the world's biggest problems. And I was able to bring my food system background and interest into that role and have been able to work on a number of really exciting initiatives at the foundation ever since.
0: How interesting. And I cannot resist asking the question. So what food shows are you watching at midnight these days?
1: Well, these days with kids, I'm not up watching much at midnight. Back then, it was The Iron Chef. I don't know if anyone remembers The Iron Chef. Before it came to the US, it actually was a show out of Japan. And they used to air it, the Japanese version with subtitles, very late at night. So it was that and Julia Child. I will say my son, who's in elementary school, really loves to watch um, some of the kids cooking shows that they have now and the sort of cake decorating competition. So those are the food shows that are mostly on in my house these days.
0: I appreciate the recommendations. (laughs) All right, Devon, before we focus on shifting diets specifically, I would like to ask you in your capacity as a food systems expert about the bigger picture of global food systems. In an early episode of this podcast, Ade Romero Briones from the First Nations Development Institute spoke a lot about native agriculture and food systems. And this made me realize just how different our Western industrialized food systems and practices are from native ones. Can you speak a little bit more about this as a food systems expert? How do these global food systems connect, work together or not?
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I've been following day for a long time and she's so insightful and wise when it comes to how all of these different things intersect. I think the first point I would say on that question, Michael, is we've come to a point, which I think is fantastic, where we talk about food systems, plural. And I think there was a time when we probably spent too many years talking about a single global food system. How do we optimize a single global food system? And I I don't think that's the reality of how food systems work or where we are today. I think today we recognize that we need some food systems that work globally, some food systems that work nationally, regionally, locally. You know, Some households have their own food systems, right? Some Some individual communities have their own food systems. So I think we're getting better at recognizing that we need to have multiple systems at different scales, and we need to exchange learnings across those systems. That one global food system isn't going to work to feed everyone and isn't going to work in terms of an infrastructure where we can be successful around important things like diets and climate. Probably the biggest learning moment, I think, for the field on that in the last few years was COVID and just how much the global system was disrupted. And we saw some places where it was resilient, but many places where it broke down and where the other systems, local, regional, et cetera, were more resilient and came into play. So so that's the first point I think I would share, is just thinking about systems, plural, on those different levels. The second is, you know, as with a lot of big global systems and a lot of really hard problems we think about, if the pendulum swings too far in one direction, you tend to have unintended consequences that you then need to correct for. And I think in a lot of ways, our global food system, which is so good at so many things. I mean, it's so good at producing quantities of food. It's generally so good at things like food safety, so good at trade and all these other things has had all these unintended consequences. A lot of them have to do with climate and diet and equity. And I think increasingly, we're looking back at other systems like indigenous systems, which have generally done a much better job of harmonizing all those priorities together, thinking about how does human health fit with climate, fit with equity, fit with community. And so I think we're starting to look back at some of the learnings that we've you know, perhaps ignored as we were optimizing for one outcome of the system as we now try to bring the system into balance. So in our work at the foundation, I think just more broadly on on system change, I think we're doing a lot of investment in trying to bring more of those voices into the conversation, bring more of those practices back and make sure that more folks like Ade and others that work with indigenous communities, rural communities, smallholder farmers, global farmers, et cetera, into some of the conversations around things like policy and solutions and technology and make sure that they're part of the conversation because we've learned over time that that wisdom is so necessary to get to the goals that we're all seeking.
0: What I hear you say is you really believe in the systems, thinking around food, food systems. What I hear you say as well, unintended consequences, the complexities. So talk to me a little bit about then the relationship between all of that and what the Rockefeller Foundation stands for and wants to do in this space.
1: Sure. Well, the Rockefeller Foundation has been around now for 110 years, and we were founded with the small task of improving the well-being of humanity. So that is kind of the charge we've been given since the early days. And we've been working in food and agriculture for almost our entire history. It's one of the earliest and most consistent sort of areas of work for the foundation. Today at the foundation, we focus on making opportunity universal and sustainable. So we're really trying to think about how do we create opportunity, particularly for populations that have been kind of underserved in the past? And then how do we do that in a world where we also need to mitigate climate change and adapt to climate change? From a food perspective, we focus on making the global food system nourishing, regenerative and equitable, as you mentioned at the top, Michael. and. Um, We've worked on a few initiatives over time. I personally, when I first joined the foundation, a lot of our work was on food loss and waste, which I know is an issue that you know well. And you had some fantastic conversations about that on the podcast last season. Um, But we've also worked in areas like sustainable protein systems. You mentioned our true cost of food work, which kind of fits in with some of our policy advocacy work. We have initiatives around good food purchasing, which looks at how do we direct dollars, particularly public dollars, that are spent by large institutions towards supporting a good food system. Um, We work on school nutrition, both here in the United States and around the world. And then recently, we've been very focused here in the United States on some work in the food as medicine space, which is looking at sort of how food and health systems come together in ways that can help shift people towards healthier diets.
0: I think one of the implicit assumptions I have is that we need to shift diet. But when you ask the question, but actually, why is that? And why do you believe that so strongly? I think you can ultimately find answers in a wide variety of directions. One could be to think about the unintended consequences of the decisions that we have made as a society. And if you tie them back to, for example, the work that you're doing with the true cost of food. Do you believe that there's something there that might be a starting point of why you believe or the Rockefeller Foundation believes there is a need to shift diets?
1: Yes. So, the work we did on true cost of food, which we put out a a large sort of analysis and report on the true cost of food in the United States a couple of years ago. And since then, other countries have started to replicate that work and look at it at a national level. Part of what we were trying to do with that work is really make visible the impacts that the food system has on some of the issues that we think are most important to americans to policymakers, to the private sector to households and i say that because sometimes i feel like the food system is a little bit forgotten in some of the big global and political conversations around kind of critical sectors right there's a lot of talk about health and healthcare there's a lot of talk about energy sometimes we talk a lot about transportation food doesn't always show up in those kind of top global priorities I think we're getting there. I think we're making a lot of progress over time. But when you look at the true cost of food report and some of the results that came out of that work, you know the analysis that we did showed that in the United States, we spend about a trillion dollars roughly on food every year. Consumer spending on food is about a trillion dollars. If you look at the impact that that food system has on key areas like human health and climate and food workers and equity, it's generating twice that. So, a little over $2 trillion in costs that aren't being recaptured by the food system itself, right? Those costs are being picked up by taxpayers, by the government, by others. And I think, you know, part of that is an economic message, which can resonate with some decision makers that we're trying to influence, specifically the economics. But part of it is just to show the pure kind of scale and impact on the food system on the rest of us. And again, these issues we care about, like climate and the health of our families and friends and equity and how we're treating food workers with dignity and respect. So when I think about how that fits in with shifting diets, I think it's easy to sort of separate sometimes the food system from this diet-related disease crisis and health crisis that we have. But they're not separate, they're, they're quite intertwined, right, the food system that we're living in today is a major driver for the rise in diet related diseases. And the fact that the health impacts of our food system cost us a trillion dollars a year is something that should get everyone's attention. And so I think in that way, it's another tool to bring more people into that conversation around how do we create a food system that helps people shift diets um, and increases equitable access to healthy food for more households.
0: If I can double click on that, Devon, for a moment, you know we live in a very polarized world and with all these polarities of, is it my responsibility, your responsibility, who got us here, who can get us out of here? Any, thoughts that you might have based on the amazing work that you and the foundation have done in ultimately and how might you create enough common ground that you can ultimately build upon the joint interests and aspirations to make progress versus just remaining stuck in the mud about well, it's them who caused the problem to start with and they need to fix it. Or why do you get involved in what I eat it's so and then you can fill in the blanks.
1: Yeah. It's such a great question. I think it's something that we struggle with every day, because everybody eats. So the food system touches everybody. And yet food and particularly what people eat is such a personal issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a community issue. It's an individual issue. And so I think getting folks to work together on the kind of system change we need is, is so important. I would say a couple of things. One is the scale of the problem has gotten so big that it affects everyone in this country. And I don't know if that's sometimes fully appreciated and understood, but diet-related disease is the number one cause of death and disability around the world, including in the United States. Healthcare spending is the largest part of our national budget. And the vast majority of those healthcare dollars now go to chronic diseases, most of which are diet-related somewhere between one and two and one and three americans are now predicted to have diabetes i mean just the the scale of it has gotten so massive that i think more and more people are coming to the conversation around how do we fix this and how do we equip households to eat better and and eat healthier so that's one piece and i think you have to you have to bring different folks into that conversation from different perspectives and and kind of you know as as we talked about the true cost report like Appeal to what matters most to them. The other thing I would just say, Michael, is these conversations have largely been separate in the past. So, healthcare has not really engaged in a conversation around eating healthy and diet in any meaningful way in the past. Doctors, for the most part, do not get a lot of training on nutrition and diet. You know, the statistic I've heard is four hours out of medical school might be dedicated to learning about nutrition and diet. They don't have currently a lot of resources to offer patients that they might be advising for medical reasons to eat healthier you know if you're if you're a doctor in this country and you're telling a patient say a a diabetic i need you to shift your diet for health reasons and that patient says i don't know how to do that i can't do that i can't afford the food i need to do that as a doctor right now you don't have a lot of tools to offer that patient maybe referring them to a local food bank or maybe giving them a number to call I think that's really hard for patients and providers all around the country. And so part of what we're trying to do is bring those stakeholders together to help the health system understand what does it look like to try to shift diets? What kind of tools can we try to offer you that you can then pass on to your patients to eat healthier? And that's where there's really exciting programs out there from innovators in the field, really community-led innovators, things like medically tailored meals and produce prescriptions and what we're now calling medical groceries that can give those patients tools like really practical tools you know a card you can take to your local grocery store and use to buy fruits and vegetables that can increase access to healthier food and i think having some of those conversations that require like really big system shifts to your point michael but also are rooted in practical tools and programs and offerings are where we get the most traction where we're able to get a diverse set of stakeholders around the table and say you know what yeah Like, this makes sense. This is going to be good for everybody. And let's figure out how to make this work.
0: Just building upon that. I find it so easy to say from we should shift diets. And then people ask you, so where do we start? And where do we want to go to? So question for you. So when we say we need to shift diets, do you have a clear definition either within the foundation, within your own mind that says, I can articulate it should be from A, to B, but what is A and what is B?
1: It's such a good question. And I'll give you my personal perspective. And a a family member was just asking me this recently. And so I was trying to make it as simple as possible. From my perspective, it's mostly plants, mostly whole foods. That's really it. I think sometimes we overcomplicate the messaging and candidly, the science has not been clear enough and the narrative the public narrative around nutrition science has absolutely not been clear enough on what people should eat but from my perspective mostly plants and mostly whole foods is a great place to start and i think there's an interesting point embedded in your question too michael which is like where do we start and where are we going the starting point looks so different for different families and I think that's really, really important to remember, because sometimes I sit in rooms where people are talking about, you know, how do we get people to move from eating, you know, somewhat processed whole grains to totally unprocessed whole grains? How do we get people to eat more of a particular vitamin? How do we get, you know, like these these sort of advanced, personalized nutrition is a really active space right now. So how do we get... Michael to eat to get his microbiome, you know, profiled and then to eat the foods that are best matched to his personal microbiome that'll optimize his health. And that's a fascinating frontier of science and that's an important conversation to have. But we also need to recognize that there's households that are starting from how do we get a vegetable into that kitchen, right? How do we get a whole grain into the store that that family can access that week? And I think we get a little lost thinking that we all can go from the same A to B when it talks about shifting diets. And sometimes we forget the really simple, not easy, but really simple practical changes that some households will make. I'll also just share one other thing, which you didn't ask about explicitly, but maybe is behind your question. I think shifting diets and systems change in general is a yes and exercise so there's almost never a single solution that's going to work to change a system or i think for the most part to change diets it's always a yes and and i think the biggest mistake we made probably in the last 30 40 years there is focusing for too long only on education nutrition education and i think nutrition education is a really important tool in shifting diets and It's not enough. And so anytime someone talks to me about, but consumers don't know what to eat, and if we offer them healthy food, would they even know how to cook it? Can't we just educate them? I say, yes, and. So let's educate them, but let's also make sure that they can afford to buy the foods that you're recommending that they eat. Let's also make sure that those foods are available to them in a place that they can get to in their busy day, that they have the transportation access, You know, let's make sure that they're culturally appropriate. Let's make sure that our policy framework supports growing and producing those foods just as much as it supports growing and producing other foods. So I think that's one of the big mistakes we've made in the past around shifting diets is being overly focused on one solution. And in particular, the nutrition education piece.
0: Can I push back on that or build out on that a little bit more? So I do believe that words matter so the notion of shift diets just talked about that but as we're talking about ultimately systems change is it really about shifting diets or is it shifting lifestyles because even if you eat better but you don't move more does it really lead to the desired outcomes and that therefore what is the balance between ultimately having a clarity and a consistent message versus trying to solve all world's challenges concurrently. But at the same time, just by eating better, but not moving more, it might still not lead to the desired outcomes.
1: I think, yes, and. (laughs) So I think, you know, there's a ton of benefits of physical activity. And I think that's another really important area from a health perspective. I do think shifting diets alone has incredible health benefits. And my worry is, candidly, that in the past, physical activity has been used by some folks in the food world, particularly companies, as if it were a mitigant for being able to eat unhealthy and a little bit to put personal responsibility back on the individual when I think there are system forces that need to be changed. So by that, I mean, you know, companies that might be selling less healthy products that say, you can enjoy these products, buy these products, we're marketing these products, and it's all fine as long as you're physically active. And I think part of what we need to do is untangle that narrative that was in some ways part of a marketing campaign with, a broader conversation around just kind of like whole person health that i think to your point michael includes eating healthy and being physically active but i tread carefully into that conversation again because it's not a trade-off right it's not like we can stick with an unhealthy food system where households don't have access to healthy foods and say you know walk around the block and and it'll be fine so i think there's some history there that that needs to be untangled.
0: I appreciate it and I'm gonna love using your yes and. So yeah, and an internal concern I have or something that I think about is we're now finding ourselves in a situation where so many individuals are so unfortunately not healthy or unhealthy. And it feels to me that we're now on this path of medicalizing, if that's a term that exists, food to make it a medicine to deal with the symptoms. And I'm struggling with it because on the one, I I totally acknowledge the challenges out there and anything that can be done to help people to become better, we should embrace. But at the same time, I fear that if I'm going to be told in the future that anything that I'm going to consume or eat needs to be of the following, and it becomes very programmed, I'm gonna lose the joy of food. I'm gonna just miss what food has done for us for so many centuries. So I'm trying to figure out from what is actually the right balance with food as medicine, food is medicine, the medicalization, and ultimately it is about the joy of food and actually using it to sustain us.
1: Yeah. I think it's one of those really important Potential unintended consequences that we mentioned at the top of change that we need to really think about and be intentional about because I don't think anyone, including in the food is medicine field, wants to medicalize food. And I've never talked to a a household that wakes up and says, you know what, we're going to eat unhealthy today just cuz, right? It's always it's always we're going to eat what's delicious today. We're going to eat what's convenient today. We're going to eat what we can afford today. We're going to eat what we think is going to make our kids feel happy today. So when we talk about eating healthy, I think we need to think about those underlying motivators for what how people select what they eat. And and Michael, I know you and your team and and others that we work closely with, you know, it has to taste good, there has to be choice, it has to be culturally appropriate. I think all those things are still really important. What the food is medicine work from my perspective is about is really getting our health care partners and colleagues to be better allies in allowing people to access the healthy food that tastes good for them, that is convenient for them, that they can afford. And it's not about creating a product, and there are people out there that are creating products there is a huge business in supplements, there is a huge business in personalized nutrition, there you know, there are shakes where you can eat a shake every day and get complete nutrition, right? When we at Rockefeller think about food as medicine, that's not the space we're in. And so we might have a rebranding coming at some point in the future, but what we're really thinking about is how do we use healthcare resources and dollars to lower some of those other barriers to allow people to eat healthy? So financially, how do we use healthcare dollars produce prescriptions to give people more spending power on healthy foods and allow them choice within that, right? Allow them to go buy any kinds of fruits and vegetables they want from the supermarket. How do we lower the barriers around access transportation for seniors, for example, with medically tailored meals, like bring the meals to them. Folks that don't have a kitchen or can't cook, bring those meals to them. So it's really about using the healthcare resources, using the healthcare system, which is massive in this country, to help us lower those barriers, because unhealthy food is the number one threat to health, like it just full stop, it's the number one threat to health in this country. And so to not leverage that massive system that we have, to help lower those barriers for patients is is a luxury we can't afford anymore. So um, that's what I would say for us, food as medicine is not about, again, a kind of particular product, a particular prescription in the sense of dictating what folks eat. It's, it's enabling them to have access to foods that will support their health. Having said all that, I think it's a really good like, question we need to continue to, to grapple with. Um, some patients respond better to advice from a healthcare professional. We've seen in the research that health is a strong motivator for folks to change what they eat. And in some cases, hearing that message from a healthcare professional will accelerate a patient's shift in diets. For other patients, that may not be the case. And we should also say that there are some households in this country that don't access the healthcare system or can't. So I don't think it's gonna be the cure all, but I do wanna make the distinction that um, from a Rockefeller perspective, food is medicine isn't about dictating what it is people eat it's actually about trying to give those households more choice to eat healthy more access to healthy eating
0: yeah that brings me then maybe to my next question the theory of change behind what your foundation does because i think it feels to me that quite often we are now able to articulate the challenges we are able to articulate directions of solutions but nothing changes until something starts to change so if you think about what the foundation stands for how do you believe change is going to happen in these very complex intertwined systems
1: it's hard but you know when people ask me what it's like to work in philanthropy sometimes i say the best part of the job is you work on the world's hardest problems and the hardest part of the job is you work on the world's hardest problems. <laughs> like it's it's hard. We we're we're audacious in the sense that we try to take on really big problems that we think the private sector or government alone or or other actors aren't well positioned to meet. And we bring a few capabilities to those problems, including food systems that I think position us in a way that we feel like we can really make change. So I like to think about it in sort of three ways, Michael and. I, often these exist in the same system, so like the food system that we're talking about. One is, I think we do a lot of work to make invisible problems visible. So sometimes there are problems in the world in these food systems that just aren't on the radar of decision makers of the general public, et cetera. I think food loss and waste is actually a great example of that. You know, 10, 15 years ago, no one was talking about food waste as a problem that needed to be solved in the food system. And candidly, we had folks in our office, some of whom are now out there talking about it quite loudly, that thought that was a huge mistake, that that was a waste of resources to focus on that problem. And, you know, that food waste is was kind of glorified garbage. Why are we working on garbage when we have all these other things to, to do? And look at how far that space has come. I mean, thanks to so many of the leaders and innovators that you spoke to last season and and some of whom we supported as grantees, we were really able to build awareness around the climate impacts of that. We were able to bring real science and data to the size of the problem and kind of put together the messaging that we're wasting all this food in a system where folks are going hungry. So I think one thing that the foundation brings to problems is helping to make the invisible visible and bringing science and data to those conversations to really show, you know, this is something we all need to pay attention to. So that's one way is invisible. The second is sometimes there's problems that just seem impossible, that just seem like we don't have a solution to this. And I think there, often innovation can be how we help to move the field along. So if I think about our renewable energy work, for example, which now has blossomed in, into this global energy alliance for people and planet, You know, there was a time where we really didn't know how we could bring productive solar energy to some of these really rural places in the world. And over the last 10 years, just so much technological innovation, as well as kind of business innovation has happened in that space, solar mini grids and the cost of batteries coming down and all these things that have enabled us to bring energy to people that just weren't able to access it before. So I think another way that we think about system change from a foundation perspective is, is making the impossible possible through innovation. And the last thing in my mind, the last type of problem is what I think of as as intractable. Like, we know this is a problem, we know there's a solution out there, but these two sides of the issue are never going to come together, or we're never going to get these partners to collaborate. And I think that's where the foundation brings really strong convening power and influence. There aren't that many organizations around the world that can bring globally policymakers, private sector leaders, nonprofits, activists, indigenous leaders, you know, all these communities around a table and say, listen, we know this might not be a table you all sit at very often, but this is what we need to unlock the kind of intractable nature of this problem. And so all that to say, I think in terms of capabilities, we, we bring science and data, we bring innovation, we bring convening and influence. Of course, we're a foundation, so we bring funding and resources. We try to bring all those tools to these really big, hard global problems. And when all goes well, we're able to catalyze shifts within those big systems.
0: Love your articulation. And what I heard you say loud and clear as well, you work on the hardest problems so a couple of follow-up questions for you as we're talking to changemakers makers on the podcast as well over here Devin, if you can go back to a younger version of yourself if you knew them what you know now any key takeaways for the audience i think
1: getting to know people from all different perspectives and sectors that touch an issue has been so important And I think early on, I probably didn't do enough of that, including skeptics, right? Of course, and including folks that um, disagree. But, you know, particularly in the coming from a business background originally, I think we thought we really got to know a sector. You know, like we would do the research and we would calculate. All the financials and we would talk to all the folks within a company and looking back on that there was so much around the systems that those organizations were working in that we didn't really understand that i think could have benefited even from a business strategy perspective and now being able to work in philanthropy and work across so many sectors and perspectives i just think i've learned personally so much from that and i think it brings so much value to the kind of systems change that we're trying to do that if i could go back in time i'd say you know even in college and the early years and things like talk to more people from other parts of the system so that you can really understand it as a whole
0: that is a great way to end the podcast today devon thank you so much for joining us on food lab talk we learned a lot including what's the watch at midnight and i believe our listeners actually have done that too thank you so much
1: thank you michael
0: I truly enjoyed my conversation with Devon and learned so much from her. Here are some of the takeaways that really stood out to me. One, systems change is not a simple from A to B trajectory. It behaves much more like a web. Devon pointed out the missteps of focusing on a linear relationship between one potential solution, like nutrition education, and the desired outcome, shifting diets. In reality, we should be deploying multiple solutions or using multiple levers to sway different parts of the system and achieve our goal. My second takeaway, the world's toughest problems require a variety of people and perspectives. Not only can inviting a variety of people and perspectives to the table help unlock the intractable nature of all these problems, but surrounding yourself with a range of leaders, innovators, and experts can enrich your personal change-making journey. For Devon, it also keeps her energized when the pace of change is slow. Lastly, specific to change the food system, I continue to be struck by our personal connection to food and the tension this creates in change in the system. Is it even possible to change something with deep emotional, spiritual, and cultural meaning? For more information about the Rockefeller Foundation, including the Good Food Strategy and other initiatives, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlaptop.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time.